Hello all and welcome to this episode of No Home for Heroes. No Home for Heroes explores history's military mysteries regarding Americans who are missing in action from our past wars. These long forgotten MIAs are remembered here. Today's episode is titled, The MIAs Who Never Were, and I'm your host, Rick Stone. No Home for Heroes is a trademark production sponsored by the Chief Rick Stone and Family Charitable Foundation. For more information on the foundation, visit our website at www.chiefrickstone.com. And now, on with our show. Four days after I joined the Joint POW-MIA Accounting Command, or JPAC, in July 2011, the chief of the World War II Research and Investigative Branch dropped a stack of thick folders on my desk and gave me the assignment to review all of JPAC's MIA recovery activities on the island of Tarawa. When the chief gave me the mission, she said, This is my most hated file. <laughs> Great. I could hardly wait to delve into what was considered such a mess. Evidently, it was JPEC's equivalent to the Jimmy Hoffa case, with over 500 missing Marines, airmen, soldiers, and sailors, instead of just one Union gangster. I guess the chief read my personnel file and noticed that I had worked in gangster heaven in Hollywood, Florida, one of Al Capone's favorite golfing spots, and a special vacation spot of infamous mobster John Gotti. My law enforcement background would serve me well at JPAC, and I quickly put it to use. One of the most enduring myths about police work is that there is some kind of missing persons bureau where detectives work long hours trying to find people who have been reported to be missing. I'm afraid this is one of those myths that have been created by television. Maybe this was true back in the early days of American policing. Probably in the 1930s and 40s and 50s, there was time for police officers to do this type of work. But the advent of the 911 call monster in the late 1960s and early 1970s compelled major city police departments to eliminate any investigative resources that had been dedicated to finding missing persons. Of course, there are exceptions that we frequently see, such as looking for missing children or the aged. But ordinarily, the basic patrol officer takes the original 911 call, performs a cursory field search, and files a report that is really never followed up on by any detective. The brutal facts are that it is not a crime to be missing, and police departments are overwhelmed with actual crimes to be investigated by a relatively small number of their staff who perform as detectives. What this means in a practical sense is that rookie police officers are trained to perform the rudiments of being a missing persons detective. I was fortunate in Dallas to have one of the best field training officers available. They're known as FTOs, field training officers. And my very first FTO taught me the first rule of missing persons. Simply put, it's find out if they are really missing. Find out if they're really missing and not hanging out at a friend's house, or that they couldn't face a parent with an F in algebra on their report card, or an adult who decided to just not come home because they were temporarily associated with a better friend 
than their current husband or wife who is wanting to make the report. So when the case files of 521 MIAs from the Battle of Tarawa fell into my lap, that is exactly what I did. I could hear my Dallas FTO, Rocky Colvin, saying, Okay, Rick, step one, find out if they're really missing, because we really don't have time to waste on it, and there are hundreds of other 911 calls waiting for us to answer. Come to find out, people who've been missing for almost 70 years are much easier to verify as missing than someone who didn't come home from Tuffy's Tavern last night. All of us leave a paper trail. Credit cards, driver's license, social security cards, death certificates, marriage documents, and the list goes on and on. If you haven't been dead for the last 70 years, chances are there should be a trail that even a rookie patrol officer can find. Unfortunately, I found out that no one at JPAC had ever learned this basic rule because no one at JPAC had ever bothered to find out if the 521 Tarawa MIAs who were on the official list of those unaccounted for in the Battle of Tarawa were really actually missing. Unfortunately, they didn't have Rocky to guide them. In less than a week at JPAC, I had gone through all 521 names on the official list, and I found some real surprises. Some were easy, some were difficult. Some were bizarre, and some, in a gallows humor sort of way, were downright funny. Let's start with the most bizarre of the cases in my stack. In one of the files, there was a folder with the name Steve Molnar. Steve had a beautiful, clear, black and white 8x10 photograph of a single grave cross with his name on it in Cemetery 36 on Tarawa. The photo was taken by the island commander in 1944, a man by the name of E.C.B. Gould. He was a Navy captain. Incredible as it may seem, there were actually two Steve Molnars who participated in the battle on Tarawa. And more incredibly still, both Steve Molnars were from Indiana. My research soon found that Private Stephen, no middle name, Molnar, had landed on Tarawa as a member of C Company, 2nd Tank Battalion, from the transport ship USS Sheridan. My research also found out that Private First Class Stephen Frank Molnar, also from Indiana, had landed on Tarawa as a member of the 1st Battalion, 2nd Marines from the transport ship USS Harry Lee. The only problem was that Private Stephen No Middle Name Molnar was promoted to Private First Class while in Hawaii two months after the battle. And I tracked him through various Marine Corps muster rolls up through January 1945, when he finally made corporal over a year after the battle. Private Stephen, no middle name Molnar, survived World War II, and he died at age 85 in Walkerton, Indiana. Private Stephen Frank Molnar transferred from the 1st Battalion, 2nd Marines to A Company, 
1st Battalion, 18th Marines, where he served as a combat engineer. His transfer was effective in January 1944, two months after the Battle of Tarawa. Unfortunately, PFC Stephen Frank Molnar was killed in action on Saipan in June 1944. His body was recovered from a temporary cemetery on Saipan by the Army Graves Registration Service after the war, and he was returned home to his family. In a further twist of these bizarre coincidences, both Molnars are buried in separate cemeteries in South Bend, Indiana. We don't know who, if anyone, was under the grave marker shown in the photograph in Cemetery 36 on Tarawa. But it sure wasn't either of the Steve Molnars who fought there. A true history's military mystery, and a bizarre one at that. After resolving that case from the files, I surely needed some easier investigations, and I soon found them. W.M. Legin, L-E-G-I-N, was on the official list of Tarawa MIAs, but I soon determined by investigative exclusion that W.M. Legan was a non-existent person. No one by that name had ever been born, and certainly no one by that name had served as a Marine in World War II. My best analysis was that Legan, with an L, was most likely a simple misspelling from a memorial marker for an actual resolved Tarawa casualty, Private First Class William Wallace Began, B-E-G-I-N. Began was a 19-year-old Minnesotan who served in A Company, 2nd Amphibious Tractor Battalion. Began left behind a fiancé in New Zealand when he shipped out with his unit for the Tarawa invasion. He never got back to his girl down under. I found documents in his file that showed that his fiancée was still looking for him as late as 1993, but the government would give her no answers. The unofficial JPAC motto was, Delay, Deny, and Wait for the Families to Die. I suspect that Began's fiancée never knew that he died on Tarawa, and that is why he never came back to her. After the battle, Began was buried in Cemetery 25 on Tarawa. He was recovered by the Army Graves Registration Service in 1946 and returned home to his family for burial in Rockford, Minnesota. I cleared W.M. Legan with an L from the official list of Tarawa casualties because I had proven that he was actually William Wallace Began. A second clearance involved the case of 2nd Lieutenant Walter George Olson. My investigation determined that Lieutenant Walter George Olson was actually resolved casualty 2nd Lieutenant Walter Jules Olson of G Company, 2nd Battalion, 8th Marines. Lieutenant Olson was from California, and he was severely wounded on the second day of the battle. 
He was evacuated to the USS Monrovia, a transport ship lying just outside the lagoon on Tarawa. And he died on board the Monrovia three days later. Lieutenant Olson was buried at sea on November 24, 1943. Lieutenant Olson became the very second clearance from the official list of 521 Tarawa casualties that had been dropped on my desk. The next individual on my suspected are they really missing list was an individual by the name of Jarrison Fowler Jr. Jarrison with a J. I quickly determined by investigative exclusion that Jarrison Fowler Jr. was another non-existent person. I mean, come on. How much detective skills does it take to see the name Jarrison with a J and wonder who would name their kid that? Sure enough, not only was there no Jarrison Fowler Jr., but there had never been a Jarrison Fowler Sr. either. I determined that the arrow was most likely a misspelling of PFC Harrison with an H, PFC Harrison Fowler Jr., who is noted by the Marine Corps as being wounded on Tarawa. He survived the battle, he survived the war, and he was discharged by the Marine Corps in 1946. He died of natural causes in Reno, Nevada on 13 April 1990. I gleefully took PFC Fowler off the official list of Tarawa dead. The next three cases that I was able to resolve were a little more difficult and Frankly, it takes a little explanation of the luck that is sometimes necessary for an investigator to solve a case. While I was assigned to JPAC in Honolulu, Hawaii, I was thousands of miles away from my home and family back in Texas. That gave me a lot of time on my hands, especially on the weekends. As you know from listening to our previous episodes, many of the Tarawa unknowns are buried in the Punchbowl Cemetery in Honolulu. This cemetery is only a few short miles from JPAC headquarters. The formal title of the cemetery is the National Memorial Cemetery of the Pacific. We all refer to it as simply the Punch Bowl. Thousands of heroes are buried there, and I visited the cemetery often on weekends for reasons that are frankly difficult to explain. Nonetheless, one weekend, I discovered that inside the very small little reception area at the cemetery stood a very old, antiquated computer terminal. Visitors could use the terminal to type in the name of a relative, and it would find what section and grave number in the cemetery where their relative was buried. Many of family members used this so they could visit the gravesite and leave flowers. I know what you're thinking. Nah, surely he didn't stand there and type in 521 names. But yep, I sure did. Sometimes being a detective is not as easy as it looks on Magnum P.I. Three names on the official list of the Tarawa MIAs actually popped up on the Punchbowl burial computer. First was Private First Class Arthur Gustav Menger, Jr., he was a member of K Company, 3rd Battalion, 8th Marines. And he was a 23-year-old Texas lad who was killed by shrapnel wounds 
on Tarawa on the very first day of the battle. When I read his name on the punch bowl computer, I practically ran out to Section B, grave number 786, where I found a marker with his real name on it. I was so excited that I called my wife back in Texas, where it was the middle of the night, and I kept yelling, I found one, I found one, I don't believe it, I found one. As I tell you this story, our production engineer, Cindy, looks at me and gives me the sign with the thumb and the forefinger on her forehead, which means that I'm starting to sound like a lunatic. But you've got to understand that anyone at JPAC actually finding an MIA anywhere in the world was really a big deal. The entire command at JPAC only cleared about 60 MIA cases a year, sometimes less. So to find an MIA only a few miles from JPAC was like finding Amelia Earhart working at the Taco Bell in downtown Honolulu. My investigation determined that the Army Graves Registration Service found PFC Menger's remains in Cemetery 26 on Tarawa in 1946. They could not identify him, and they designated his remains as Unknown X-124. My investigation also determined that he had been identified by the Army Central Identification Laboratory, known as the SIL, in Hawaii in 1946. When Private First Class Menger was identified, for reasons that will never be known, he simply was not removed from the official list of Tarawa MIAs. Theoretically, the U.S. government had been looking for him for almost 70 years, when he was actually never missing in the first place. Well, now I was on a roll at the punch bowl. I also soon found Corporal Arthur Francis Gagney, Jr., a member of D Company, 2nd Tank Battalion, in Section B, Grave 591, in the Punch Bowl. Corporal Gagney was a 20-year-old Massachusetts kid who was reported drowned off Abang Island in the Tarawa Atoll when an enemy shell struck near his rubber landing craft, causing it to capsize. He was the only casualty in that operation and that operation and mission had begun aboard the minesweeper USS Pursuit. Their job was to reconnoiter three islands adjacent to Tarawa, where there was a possibility that Japanese coast watchers might still be on these islands. Before dawn on 30 November 1943, Company D attempted to land two rubber boatloads of Marines, and that was when Corporal Gagney was killed. His body was not recovered, until 5 July 1946, when he was buried on Tarawa in Lone Palm Cemetery. Corporal Gagney was identified prior to July 16, 1948, by the Army Central Identification Laboratory in Hawaii, and he was buried in the punch bowl without any fanfare. Next up on the punch bowl computer was Corporal Hubert Clayton Luther. I Company, 3rd Battalion, 2nd Marines. Corporal Luther was an old man among his fellow Marines. He was a whopping 30 years old and from Kansas. 
Corporal Luther was killed on the first day of the battle by gunshot wounds to his abdomen, and he was buried on Tarawa in Cemetery Number 8. Just like Steve Molnar, there was a really clear photo of Corporal Luther's gravesite. The black and white photo showed a wooden cross with his name and decorations on his grave using four five-inch artillery shell casing. In the photo, Corporal Luther's helmet hangs from its chin strap from an iron tripod at the head of his grave. I want to read for you Corporal Luther's citation for his Navy Cross. The Navy Cross is the second highest award available by our nation, and it ranks just below the Congressional Medal of Honor. The Navy Cross is awarded to Hubert C. Luther, serial number 365432. The award is posthumous. Corporal Luther, United States Marine Corps, is awarded the Navy Cross for extraordinary heroism and devotion to duty while serving as a leader of a rifle squad and an assault company of the 3rd Battalion, 2nd Marines, 2nd Marine Division, in combat against enemy Japanese forces at Basio Island, Tarawa Atoll, Gilbert Islands, on 20 November 1943. While leading his squad forward in an attack, Corporal Luther observed an enemy 40mm gun on his left, firing on boats of succeeding waves attempting to land on the beach. Although the weapon was outside his assigned zone of action, Corporal Luther quickly reorganized his depleted squad and on his own initiative led his men in a daring assault on the hostile emplacement and skillfully destroyed the gun and its crew with hand grenades before he was killed. Ironically, I determined that Corporal Luther was one of the very first Tarawa dead to have been recovered by the Army Graves Registration Service on the first day of their operations on Tarawa in March 1946. In the confusion of the first day's disinterments by Agris, Corporal Luther wasn't even given an unknown X number, but he was identified in Hawaii by the Army Central Identification Laboratory in 1947. I was very familiar with Corporal Luther's case. He was awarded the Navy Cross, as we've discussed. He was awarded the Navy Cross, and then his government listed him as MIA, and his government lost him until I found him in Section C, Grave 1301, in the Punch Bowl. The last of the MIAs who never were is Private First Class David Julian Parm, P-A-R-M. This case, well, I don't know how to describe it. It, in many ways, it's just plain funny. That is, in a police officer's gallows, gallows humor sort of way. But it has a very bittersweet ending. Private First Class Parm was 26 years old when he was noted by the Marine Corps as being wounded in action on Tarawa on 20 November 1943. PFC Parm survived the war, and he was discharged in 1945, not knowing that he was officially listed as MIA, missing in action. 
1977, 34 years after the battle and long discharge from the Marine Corps, PFC Parm applied for a disability with the Veterans Administration, citing a head wound he had received at Tarawa. Of course, we don't know for sure exactly what the conversation was between Mr. Parm and the VA in 1977, but we can assume that in Benton Harbor, Michigan, where Mr. Parm lived, this kind of conversation probably transpired. The VA clerk said, Mr. Parm, we can't help you. You're dead. <laughs> to which the 60-year-old former Marine, and I know there's no such thing as a former Marine, but in any case, the 60-year-old former Marine replied, No, I'm not dead. Yes, you are, said the clerk. You were shot in the head in 1943. Yes, said Mr. Parm. That's why I'm here. I need help because I was shot in the head on Tarawa. 34 years ago, to which the clerk probably replied, I don't know nothing about no Tarawa, but you're dead, so go away. PFC Parm left the VA, and, as the clerk asserted, he died soon after, on 18 September 1977. He was 60 years old. He's buried in Buchanan, Michigan next to his wife, Esther. There's no mention on his grave that he was a Marine. In the end, PFC Parm may have felt his country had abandoned him. I hope not. Of all the cases of the MIAs that I've helped solve, I may be most proud of finally resolving PFC Parm's case and the other MIAs who never worked. Thank you for listening to this episode of No Home for Heroes. We hope you've enjoyed today's production, and we invite you to check out our other episodes. Don't forget to tune in every Saturday when we will post a new episode of History's Military Mysteries, Missing in Action. Episodes of No Home for Heroes are produced from the actual investigative case files of the Chief Rickstone and Family Charitable Foundation, dedicated to providing information to the families of missing American servicemen and missing American servicewomen. As always, we greatly appreciate your comments, and a special link is available for you to contact us on our website at www.chiefrickstone.com. Our next episode is titled, A Shot in the Dark, and you don't want to miss that one either. We'll tell you the story about a Medal of Honor winner who's an MIA. Chances are that if you've ever taken an airplane flight in the United States, you've flown through the airport named after him without even knowing the connection. Here's a hint. It's not John Wayne Airport in Orange County, California. This is a great trivia question and one of history's military mysteries. We'll answer the question in our next episode of History's Military Mysteries Missing in Action. Until next time, be safe, be careful, and wishing you fair winds and following seas. I'm your host, Rick Stone, reminding you that war is the nation that has no heroes, but shameful, 
is the nation that having heroes forgets them. <laughs>